how are you doing with a thousand, with a thousand, with a hundred tables? We're trying to encourage you to get some new people in your house or out to dinner. It doesn't have to be a huge deal, but try to get some people together, either some people here you don't know, maybe your neighbors, whatever. We're, we, we've got a couple of weeks left only, and we don't have half yet. So let's get going on the 100 tables. Get your pictures, send them to Danny, danny at pccpb.org. And uh, we'll see what we can do. Part of, part of this series is to, is to get us relating to other people, to demonstrating mercy, showing and doing justice and walking humbly with God. So keep that on your mind. It's okay. <laughs> They're hard to see. We need to move the chairs a little farther away from those. Well, welcome. This is Sunday number five out of seven in our uh, 40 Days of True Religion series. We're exploring what does it really mean and what does God require of people who really desire to follow him. Our premise has been what we do on Sunday is important, but what we do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday is just as important. We began with the parable Jesus told to the lawyer about the Good Samaritan and discovered what the lawyer really needed was complete transformation of his personal life if he's really going to please God. And so we looked then at, at Amos, the minor prophet, to see what God was looking for in the transformed relationships and, and in their lives in, in those days. We added some perspective by looking at what the half-brother of Jesus, James, had to say in James 1, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that, our God and that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Watch what you say, care for those in need, and keep your character as it should be. And now we're in the middle of a deep dive into one verse in the Old Testament, Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah says there's three requirements, three demands that God makes of us if we're going to say we're going to follow him. They're absolute necessities. You have to do them. And what does he say that we're supposed to do? You know this, right? You can say it with me. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. That was pretty weak. <laughs> we have to do three things. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And as is our pattern of late, we started at the back and we're working our way forward. We started with walk humbly with our God, and we looked at that last week. Um, there was really only one point of application I wanted us to consider as we thought about what does it mean to walk humbly. And you could summarize what I was trying to say with a quote from Chad Bird. He wrote this, in the end, after he got all of his education, after all he was living his life, I could quote from Augustine's Confessions in Latin, from Rabbi Hoshaya in Hebrew, and Luther's catechism in German. But I had no clue what my daughter's favorite stuffed animal was. 
in my accomplishments, I only succeeded to fail in the most important parts of life. And we, we explored ambition. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Don't let ambition guide your relationships. Don't let your ambition declare your importance. Don't let your ambition discern what the will of God is for you. Make it your ambition not to drink of the cultural Kool-Aid that you've got to get ahead, to lead a quiet life. It doesn't mean we lower our expectations. It means we lower our eyes. We look next to us. We look around us. And rather than, than gazing at that next trophy or working, you know, giving up everything for that next raise, we look around at the people whom God has placed in our lives for us to serve. Walk humbly with your God. One application. So this morning we come to the second of the middle requirement in Micah 6h, which is to love mercy. All right? We got several things to explore as we talk about mercy. First, you got to ask the question, what is mercy? What is it? There are a handful of Hebrew words, which probably makes a really good sermon series come someday. You need to know four, five, six, eight Hebrew words. That's all. But this word translated here as mercy is one of the key words in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word hesed. H-E-S-E-D. Hesed. And it's one of their words for love. It's a difficult word to translate into English because it has a very wide range of meaning. It carries the idea of a completely undeserved kindness or generosity. Hence the, the concept of mercy. Isaiah 54.10 says this, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, life goes crazy, yet my unfailing love, God is speaking, my hesed, for you will not be shaken, no matter what happens. Hesed, you see, isn't just a feeling. It isn't just an emotion. Hesed is an action. It intervenes on behalf of, of people somebody loves, and it comes to their rescue. It's not, it's not describing romantic love. It's not describing infatuation. It's faithful love. Some translations, when I was in school, we, we translated always pretty much loyal love. It's reliable. It's when a wife prays for her husband to come to know the Lord or come to know God for years. It's the parents who care for their autistic child year after year after year. You'll often see it translated into English as loving kindness. Okay? It is love put into action. And the best part about this word, it is often used of God to describe how he deals with us. It wraps up all the positive attributes of God, his love and his covenant faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his loyalty. But to understand this word, I think you kind of need to see it in action. It's all over the Old Testament but one of the best examples of hesed is to be found in the story of Ruth. We meet Naomi in nothing more or less than a horrible situation. 
She's a Jew living on the wrong side of the Jordan River. She's living in Moab. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. She's there among the Moabites living alone with just her two daughters-in-law. And she decides, you know, this is bad over here. I need to get back to my people. And so she tells her daughter-in-laws, you guys stay here. You're young enough. You'll find another husband. You'll do great. You're Moabites. You're living in Moab. I'm going to go back home. And Orpah says, okay, I think I'll do that. And Ruth says, you know the story. No, I'm going back with you. I'm going to leave Moab behind and go back and start afresh with you. Orpah considers that stays home. Ruth stays with Naomi, and she puts her decision this way, Ruth 1.16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Or I should say it in the NIV. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Between you and me, this isn't a wedding verse. This is a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. It's not some romantic thing, but we use it in weddings. It sounds good. But Ruth had every right just to stay in Moab and, and start a new life. But in that context, she, she says, I'm going to go with you, Ruth. I'm going to choose the path of loyal love to you. I'm going to go where I'm an outsider, and they hate Moabites in Israel. Ruth ignores the easy path and takes the hard one. She shows hesed, loving kindness, mercy to Naomi. Hesed is never merely an abstract feeling of goodwill. It requires some action. What are you going to do? Something practical on behalf of somebody else. So she settles in with Naomi. Hesed, faithful love, loyal love, active love, full of grace and mercy and kindness. But there's a second question, because the text says we're supposed to love mercy. How do we love mercy? How do you love loving kindness? I don't think it means we just act in a merciful way here and there from time to time. But it needs to become a habit, and there needs to be a consistency to our lives where we're demonstrating this mercy or this loving kindness. I think that means we have to recognize it in other people, and we have to allow God to develop it within ourselves. So do we love to show mercy? If we're going to do that, I think it means we have to try to see life and its relationships through the lens of mercy. Instead of judging as a first reaction, show mercy as a first reaction. Because if we're honest, when we're driving down the street or we're going someplace, we look out the window and we say, look at those people, how bad they are. Or look at that irresponsible behavior. <laughs> I would never do that. I have said in this series, that until we embrace our own brokenness, the brokenness in other people, when we try to help them, we're, we're going to muck things up. We're going to likely do far more, far more harm than good. So we're good at standing back in judgment, but God is calling us to get close, 
to act with hesed, loyal love, and love doing it. In the 1990s, Alyssa Collins and her children lived in one of America's most dangerous housing projects outside of Chicago. She had become pregnant at the age of 16, dropped out of high school, had started collecting her welfare checks. Eventually, she would have five children from four different fathers. Not one of them ever helped her to raise the children. She had very few skills, no husband, a limited social network. She struggled to raise her family in an environment surrounded by drugs, substance abuse, failing schools, high unemployment, violence everywhere, teenage pregnancy, and no role models. She would try to get a job, but she faced a lot of obstacles. What kind of obstacles? Well, there were not a lot of decent paying jobs for high school graduates within the ghetto. The welfare system, it penalized her for earning money. It took away benefits for every dollar she raised or earned and for every asset that she, she owned. She found the government training vocationally and job assistance programs to be confusing and staffed by some condescending adults, bureaucrats. She had childcare issues, five kids. Obviously, holding a job was difficult. She felt inferior and inadequate. And when she tried to get vocational training or a job, she faced those same obstacles over and over again. So eventually, she just lost confidence, and she retreated into her comfort zone of what? Public housing and welfare checks. She felt trapped. And she and her family often talked about how they couldn't get out of the ghetto. It had become for them a trap. And what does God require us to do? Hesed. Show mercy. Show loyal love and kindness. So how do you do that to a person like Alyssa? How do we show hesed to the Alyssa Collinses of our world? There is no easy answer to that question. When God created us, what did he say? He said everything was good. Yet we can see the harsh consequences of the fall all over the place. Poverty is complex. And it's evidenced in broken relationships. And that brokenness in relationships is expressed not just on the personal level, but it's on the economic level. It's on the political level. Yeah, politics, guess what? They're broken. The social level, the religious systems that we create are broken. And then Paul says this in Colossians 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. And through him, through Christ, to do what? To reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, Jesus doesn't beam us up once we come to know Christ. Oh, it would be great if he did. Beam him up. There's another one. 
Jesus is doing what? He is bringing reconciliation to every last speck of the universe, including our foundational relationships and all kinds of relationships, the systems that come from those relationships. You see, poverty is rooted in what? Broken relationships. So the solution to poverty is related and it's going to come from the power of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection to put all things right in those relationships once again. And that's what the Alyssa Collins of this world needs, complete reconciliation in all areas of their life. And what are we called to do? The work of reconciliation. We're not the reconciler, Jesus is, but we are his ambassadors. We represent his kingdom to all the relationships that we encounter. Therefore, out of his loyal love, out of the complexity of this thing called poverty, we define poverty alleviation like this. What is it going to look like for us to deal with the Alyssa Collins of this world? Poverty alleviation is the ministry of reconciliation, moving people closer to God by living in right relationship with God, by living in right relationship with themselves, by living in right relationship with other people, by living in right relationship with creation. It's much more than just money. If we're going to help the Alyssas, we have to realize all of the issues that she faces. But reconciliation of relationships has to be the guiding compass for our concern. That's what has to shape our goals and our methods, how we do that. You see, the goal is not to make people in poverty, wherever they live, into middle-class, upper, upper middle-class Americans. That's not the goal. Why not? Have you seen what the stats are for upper middle-class Americans? The stats say we are marked by high rates of divorce and sexual addiction and substance abuse and mental illness. Oh, great. Well, let's just make them all middle-class people. That's not the issue. The goal cannot be just to give people like Alyssa stuff. Because poverty is complex. She had enough money to survive, but she still felt trapped by poverty. It's much more than, than just giving her money. The goal, you know, our welfare system gave her enough money to live, but she still felt trapped. So what is the goal? The goal is to restore people to a full expression of their humanness to being what God created them to be, people who glorify God by living in right relationship with God and with themselves and with other relationships and the rest of creation. And you know what? It is much harder to do than to hand out money, which I think is one reason we have to love doing this or it will never happen. Are we willing to step up and to love doing mercy?
as part of the fabric of our lives because that is true religion. That's what God requires, and, and it's very messy. But that's what God is calling us to do and to be. It's part of the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given by the Savior. And if we're involved with the poor only out of guilt or only out of an attempt to get brownie points with God, you know, he says in Micah 6, 8, I've got to do this. What's the next question? How much do I really have to do? Let's check it off and make sure I've done it. What's the minimum daily requirement for loving mercy? Well, how did Jesus demonstrate loving mercy? What did he sacrifice for us? Well, only his life and on a cross. We don't love mercy to gain the favor of God. We love mercy because of the mercy we've seen and received from God. Now, this isn't easy to consider because we see what? Everywhere we turn, there is so much human need. It's on our street corners. It bombards us in the media. So it's easy for us to harden our hearts and to judge, right? We see Alyssa's everywhere, but we don't know any Alyssa's. We think she's just foolish, or she's just manipulating the system, or she's lazy. She's taking advantage of our tax dollars or our personal investment. We need to hear God say again through the voice of Micah, as one of mine, you need to love mercy. For what you have received yourself, it is from me. So it's time to dive deep because there's one more question I have to ask. Isn't poverty just too overwhelming? If he really wants me to love mercy, I'm overwhelmed. The world is too broken. There are too many Alyssas. So what am I supposed to do? I turn on the evening news, and what do I see? First story, the lead is there's another tsunami. It's washed over Indonesia. It's devastated. It left millions without food or clothing or shelter. It goes away to commercial, and the next story back is about the growing number of homeless men in the city who also, ha they have no food, they have no shelter, they have not enough adequate clothing, and it's winter coming. At first glance, it seems that the appropriate response to each of those news stories is the same thing. But is it? People, yeah, they need food, they need clothing, they need shelter. But there's something nagging in us as we put those two things side by side. Deep down, it does seem to us that those two crises in life are very different. They require different expressions of mercy, of hesed. So how do we think about these two scenarios? What are some principles that can guide us to help us really do and love mercy? Because we need some wisdom so that we can help each situation without hurting them or us in the process. And a helpful first step, I think, is to figure out what each situation calls for and why. Because poverty is so complex, one simple answer to each thing, a clothing drive for both of them, isn't the solution. 
Because if we don't figure that out, we're most likely to cause harm in the relationships. So let's evaluate what's a proper response. You're living your life and bam, here an earthquake hits. Well, we'll use the tsunami overseas. We'll stick with that. Tragedy strikes and what happens? You see pictures and if it were you living there, you would be in desperate need. So what do you need? Number one, you need relief. You need relief. Relief can be defined as an urgent and temporary provision of emergency aid. It's urgent, it's temporary. The goal is what? You gotta reduce the suffering. Get these people food, get them some water, get them some shelter in the middle of this crisis. It's that earthquake we hear about, it's that tsunami we see. And we see people who are nearly or even completely helpless and they're experiencing these huge economic needs. There's a need to halt the free fall. Stop that. Stop the bleeding. That's what relief attempts to do. It's assistance that, that's usually material. That's what they need. They need some stuff because they cannot do it themselves. They don't have the resources anymore. This is the good Samaritan binding up the wounds of the guy laying across the road. He might have saved his life. He was helpless and bleeding. So stop the bleeding. Relief. Second thing you can do is rehabilitation. The chart's on the back of your sermon notes. So you, you, know, you, you know what they are. There's no surprise. Rehabilitation. As soon as the bleeding stops, the goal is then to try to restore them into a community, to the positive elements that they had as they were living before the crisis hit. This is a dynamic working with the victims as they participate in their own recovery. This is a partnership. Rehabilitation is a partnership. And then third, there is development. As, as they're rehabilitated, maybe they need some development. It's a process of working with them to have ongoing change so that you work with these people so that they, they bring them into better relationships with God, with themselves, with others, and with creation. After they've materially poor, have developed, then they can learn about their calling in God. They can fulfill that by working and supporting themselves with the fruit of that work. Development is not two people it's, or four people. You do it, again, with people. And what is the biggest mistake that the North American church usually makes in trying to love mercy? We do relief when we should be doing rehabilitation or we should be doing development. You see, the Good Samaritan's handouts were appropriate when you're at step one. They're not appropriate at step two and three. The person at point three is not facing an emergency. Handouts of stuff to such people doesn't help restore them to productive life. They're not being the stewards that they were created to be. You see, not all poverty is created equal. So someone asks you for help, or they come by the church, or they call you up, what do you do? Well, the what's the response of Hesed? What's the response of mercy? You gotta ask four questions. Is there really a crisis at hand? 
If you fail to provide that immediate, that immediate need, what are the consequences of that? Are they going to be very serious and negative? If not, then the relief is not the appropriate response because there's time for that person to, get, to take actions for themselves. Second question, to what degree was the individual responsible for their own crisis? The tsunami people, they're not, well, you know, they're not responsible. Now, it requires some compassion, some understanding. You've got to consider the factors that, that are rooted in systemic poverty. That means you have some compassion for Alyssa. You put yourself in her shoes for a moment. But you also need to consider her part in this situation. Number three, ask, can the person help himself? Even a little? If they can help themselves even a little, then a handout is usually not appropriate. Why? Because it undermines their capacity to be a steward of their own resources and abilities. Get them in a right relationship with themselves. And fourth, to what extent has this person already been receiving relief from us and other people in the past? How likely is it that they're going to get help from somewhere else in the future? You know, most people come in my churches these days. We are not the first stop. We're a great church. I get it. But we're not their first stop and we're not their last stop. They make their rounds. And we are special, but we're probably not the first one-time gift they've received. We might be the 10th. And we understand that in our culture. What happens is if you take that scenario and you have us look at it in a, in a foreign culture. Let's move this all to a different place where the poverty they are experiencing from our perspective is devastating. In that context, we are very quick to hand out relief. I'll be honest, I am very quick to hand out relief. We're much quicker to help overseas than we are here at home. Why? Because we see their poverty as devastating. And in that context, we want to we help. Jehovah Jireh Church. It's a congregation in the slums of Manila. They wanted to show loving kindness to the people in their church. So what did they do? They began a savings and credit association. Each of the members of this savings and credit association, they live on about $5 a day. And they are required, if they belong to this organization, to deposit with this group 20 cents a week. They take those deposits and they, and they use them to make some small interest-bearing loans to the members. They formed a bank. In addition, each of these members must contribute 5 cents a week to the association's emergency fund, which they can use to provide emergency aid for people who belong to the, to the, to the co-op. From where we sit, they are all in crisis. Five cents a day is all they can get them to, to donate. Money from this emergency fund is lent to members who have a need. 
It is loaned, not given. At 0% interest, but it's still loaned. And you do not get assistance for your electric bill or your water bill. Not an emergency. You should have taken care of those things. That situation is not an emergency. They will not even give you an emergency loan to have a baby because you've had nine months to prepare for that delivery and you should have prepared. Finally, the amount of the loan from the emergency fund is limited to however much you've invested in the emergency fund. These people are tough. So what happens if an American church walks into that situation? If we're gonna project our ideas of what is a good standard of living, and we're gonna quickly take relief as our only option, and we're gonna dole out our money in ways that they would consider unwise and unuseful and unhelpful. We're gonna undermine their local leadership, their accountability and judgment and discipline and stewardship. Research says that the injection of outside funds into these savings and credit groups dooms them to collapse. They're doing fine without us. And the point is this, as we decide if relief is appropriate, we cannot impose our cultural assumptions into contexts we don't understand very well. Whether it's the slums of Manila or the ghetto of Chicago, we begin with the decision, is this relief? Is it rehabilitation? Or is it development? Because if it's relief, it needs to be temporary and it needs to be done quickly. And it needs to be rare. So, loving mercy. I've used some extended illustrations to help us this morning remember three lessons. Number one, from Alyssa, poverty is complex. It isn't just that she needs money. That didn't help her get out of her situation. If we're going to love mercy, we're going to have to move away, though, from judging her and camp in the mercy area. Second, from Manila, we learned that not all poverty is created equal. We need to distinguish between relief and rehab and development. We need to be wise in our application of aid. And third, from Victor Hugo, we're going to learn, going to learn, notice the verb. I haven't said, we haven't done the illustration yet, so. We're going to learn that mercy isn't just about being nice. It's going to cost us something. Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, I forgot to ask Joanna how to pronounce all these French words. It tells the story of Jean Valjean, a man who had just spent 19 years in jail for stealing bread. He gets out, he's an ex-con, therefore he's not welcome anywhere. So he ends up, you know the story, you've seen the musical. I haven't, but you have. <laughs> you just find your illustrations wherever. So he ends up being taken in by a local church. You know, they know God, God requires charity and love and, and all these things and hospitality. And so Bishop Muriel tells Valjean, though our lives are very humble, what we have we'll share with you. <laughs> 
In a desperate act, Valjean does what? He steals the silver. The, their one valuable thing that they have as a church, he takes it and runs off in the middle of the night. The police catch him, and in the morning they bring him back to this church and to this, um, uh, the pastor there, and they said, you know, did you, he says you gave this to them, did you? Verify, is this true or not? Bishop Muriel, he's in a bit of a tough situation. He has shown this criminal some love and he's been repaid with the theft of the most precious thing the church owns. He is well within his rights to tell the truth. And no one's going to question, did you do the right thing? Of course you did. He did steal it. But instead of turning him in, the bishop, he does what? He grabs the silver candlesticks and he hands them to, to uh, Jean Valjean. And he says, you know, <laughs> we, yes, we gave them to him and he forgot to take the candlesticks. Here you go. <laughs> and after they leave, the police leave, the bishop tells Valjean, forget not. Never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I'm buying for you. I withdraw it from the dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. He acted mercifully when it seemed very obvious that he should be judged harshly. This act of compassion it could have resulted in other people getting, becoming victims of this guy. He's a petty thief. He goes out, he's going to keep stealing. It was risky. But to see this from God's perspective, the bishop had to sacrifice his pride. He had to sacrifice his, um, his righteous indignation. Valjean had already responded to his kindness by stealing from him. But this second act of mercy is like being victimized twice. He'd been mistreated, and now he was letting this person get away with it. Mercy isn't just about being nice. It is a kindness that's extended at personal cost when it's within our power to do otherwise. It's having the ability to see the big picture instead of being focused on the respect and the deference and the treatment we think we're deserved. If we want to help people, if we want to be people who love mercy, we need to remember four things. First, how much mercy we require from God. The Bible is story after story after story of God's mercy triumphing over judgment. Despite the constant betrayal, God always responds with mercy and with grace and with patience. And in the most shocking display of mercy in history, the sinless Christ goes to a cross to pay for our sin. Hesed. Loyal, faithful love. Second, we need to remember how much mercy we require from others. 
we're all pretty supportive of mercy as a concept when we're on the receiving end of it. We love it. It's when we need to extend it that we begin to look for an alternative way to respond. And as believers, we struggle to work out our salvation and to make decisions so that we will not hurt others and those around us. And yet God still displays his mercy when we fail. And third, and there are only three, how the mercy we experience, we need to remember, how the mercy we experience is not always an easy choice for those around us either. Mercy can do what judgment cannot. When Jean Valjean experiences the bishop's mercy, it is in the story a game changer in his life. This legitimate act of mercy motivates within him change and his character becomes defined by selflessness and compassion, finally. That's the only way we can love mercy at great sacrifice, to follow the example of God because we have experienced that grace and that mercy ourselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we're expected to be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And it also isn't always limited to just showing forgiveness for wrongs others have committed. Although forgiveness is a huge component, I think, of mercy. But by showing deep kindness and warmth to others and wanting genuinely the best for them, even when they might not deserve it, we love mercy. You have those relationships or you don't think that person deserves your mercy or your grace or your forgiveness. But mercy is messy because it's a process that ultimately depends on us understanding our reconciliation with Christ. Colossians 1, we are pleased, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. To love mercy isn't something we put in a bottle and we just sprinkle it around in places that we go and wherever we want it to happen. It's going to take people who love to do it, people willing to be faithful over the long haul. What are we doing to show mercy in our community? What are we doing to demonstrate our loyal love how can we do better in reaching the Alyssas around us? I'm thrilled we've begun to tackle the issue of refugees locally. This church always responds with great generosity to relief efforts around the world. And we're doing well on a lot of fronts. But the question always in Micah is, how's our heart? Are we lovers of mercy? Are we judging those either above or below us on the rung of economic status? We wouldn't do that overseas, so why do we do it here? Mercy, it's not just about being nice. It is kindness extended at personal cost when we don't really have to pay that cost. It's having the ability to see the big picture it's the ability 
to give and display the treatment we've received from our Savior. Walk humbly with your God. Love mercy. Let's pray. Father, I, I just ask that you would help us to examine our lives and our hearts, that we wouldn't just say these words, but this morning we might hear, and we've explored some ways that, 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 that we need to really deal with as upper-middle-class Americans that we might show mercy, that we who have received the loyal love of you might be known as people who live that and display that every day of our lives. Help us to love loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.